Hello and welcome to Do The Film Thing, a film appreciation and analysis podcast. I am your host, Victor Omoyo, and this is episode four of season one. On this podcast, I delve deep into various elements of a single film, from specific scenes and themes to its cultural impact and production history, just to name a few. In this audio essay, we will explore Spike Lee's incredible third feature film, 1989's Do the Right Thing, starring an ensemble cast including Spike Lee, Ruby Dee, Ossie Davis, Danny Aiello, John Turturro, Richard Edson, Giancarlo Esposito, Joao Lee, Roger Guinevere Smith, Rosie Perez, Bill Nunn, and Samuel L. Jackson. Taking place over the course of one hot summer day on a single block of Brooklyn's Bed-Stuy neighborhood, Do the Right Thing highlights a variety of distinct characters as they each live their lives. Among the key players in the film include Mookie, played by Spike Lee himself, a pizza delivery man who works for Sal's Pizzeria, owned by the eponymous Sal, played by Danny Aiello, who also employs his two sons, the racist hothead Pino, and the good-natured, easygoing Vito, both played respectively by John Turturro and Richard Edson. As the day progresses, all of the racial tensions that have been simmering underneath the surface of the neighborhood will eventually boil over into utter violence, culminating in a horrifying tragedy at the hands of the police. On December 20th, 1986, in the Queens, New York neighborhood of Howard Beach, three black men were confronted by a mob of white teenagers outside of a pizza parlor and were chased down and beaten. One of the victims, Michael Griffith, was chased onto the nearby Belt Parkway where he was struck and killed by a passing driver. This tragic incident gave Spike Lee the inspiration to write Do the Right Thing, as well as planted the seeds of what came to be the climax in the final film, with the setting of Sal's Pizzeria playing a pivotal role in the story. More on this later. To elevate the tension of the film's narrative, Lee chose to set the story in the midst of a hot summer day. Ernest Dickerson, the film's director of photography, chose to emphasize warmer, earth-colored tones and avoided cool-toned colors such as blue and purple. The result is a vibrant-looking movie with bright, loud colors and expressive shades of red and brown that beautifully convey the sense of a sweltering, heat-filled summer where relief comes in the form of a refreshing cascade of water rushing from an open fire hydrant. Well, at least until the cops arrive. Dickerson also set up a few shots in the film where we see thick heat waves rising from the baking concrete streets and sidewalks. To create this effect, he lit a can of Sterno right underneath the camera lens. We can feel the heat even in the comfort of an air-conditioned room. So rather than exploring the film from a scene-to-scene basis from opening to closing credits, Let's take a look at how the film's themes of race and racism are addressed by its memorable assembly of dynamic characters, beginning with Sal and his sons Pino and Vito. We are first introduced to the trio when they're opening up their family business at the start of the day. Pino explains that he detests Bedstuy like a sickness, exuding I-don't-want-to-be-here energy with his all-black attire and sunglasses. Vito is comparatively more even-keeled, not expressing the overt racism of his older brother, and is also friendly with Mookie, much to Pino's consternation. 
Sal is the proud proprietor of the neighborhood pizzeria, a man who takes pride in his business, despite his oldest son refusing to see the value in his life's work. Pino in particular is an interesting character. He is an out-and-out -out racist who makes no effort whatsoever to disguise his racist sentiments behind dog whistles and euphemisms, even going so far as to disparage the mayor played by Ossie Davis, the elderly neighborhood drunk who comes by the pizzeria and asks Sal if he could sweep out front for a little bit of pocket change. Pino even spews anti-black racial epithets in Italian right in front of the mayor and Mookie. Later in the film, Mookie takes Pino aside and confronts him about his racist hypocrisy, pointing out that Pino's favorite celebrities are black. Magic Johnson is Pino's favorite basketball player, Eddie Murphy is his favorite movie star, and Prince is his favorite rock star, although he denies this and insists it's Bruce Springsteen. Pino stammers out an insipid reply, telling Mookie that, quote, Magic, Eddie, Prince, they're not niggas. I, I, I mean, they're not black. I mean, they're not really black. I mean, they're black, but not really. They're more than black. It's different, end quote. On the film's commentary track, Spike mentions that Mookie and Pino's conversation, quote, crystallizes the phenomenon where white Americans can simultaneously despise black people and still try to emulate how black people talk, walk, dress, etc., and still deny that black people have anything worthwhile to contribute, end quote. It is a strange and, quite frankly, stupid perspective that Pino has. Does he mean that a black person has to achieve fame and financial success in order for their humanity to be genuinely acknowledged? If Eddie Murphy, Magic Johnson, Prince, or any other black famous figure are, quote, more than black in Pino's words, then does that mean that the default setting of blackness is what exactly? Poverty and anonymity? Suppose Pino means that these black celebrities are more than black in the sense of them achieving parity with their famous white counterparts, or just white people in general. Well, what does that make Pino? He's not famous, he's not rich, so by his own dim definition of blackness, is he himself black? Looking at Pino and Mookie's exchange, it also brings to mind an interview that James Baldwin did in 1963, titled A Conversation with James Baldwin, from Perspectives, Negro and the American Promise. In this program, Baldwin states, quote, What white people have to do is try and find out in their hearts why it was necessary to have a nigga in the first place. Because I'm not a nigga, I'm a man. But if you think I'm a nigga, it means you need it. End quote. Pino is not one for introspection. He clings to his hatred of black people like it's a means for him to avoid asking the hard, honest questions about his station in life. In his director's journal, excerpts of which were reprinted in the booklet of the 2019 re-release of the film's Criterion Collection edition, Spike Lee makes note of this, essentially implying that Pino, as well as Vito, will likely be stuck where they are. Lee writes in an entry dated January 4th, 1988, quote, both Pino and Vito only made it through high school. They will work in their father's pizzeria probably for the rest of their lives and are ill-equipped to do otherwise. They're lower middle class and basically uneducated. You ought to see the way they react to blacks in business suits. 
it burns them up that a black person could have more than they will ever have in life. End quote. As we see in the film, this exclusively applies to Pino. He is too full of anger to see that it is his abhorrent attitude and worldview that is holding him back from where he thinks he deserves to be. As James Baldwin says in The Fire Next Time, quote, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense, once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. In the middle of the film, we are treated to an interlude from the neighborhood DJ, Mr. Senor Love Daddy, played by Samuel L. Jackson, who gives a roll call to several noteworthy black recording artists whose music has left an indelible mark on culture worldwide. In a way, this is a fitting rebuke to Pino's hypocritical racism that gives credit to black artists, but not black people or culture. That is, the very creations of these artists that make everyone's lives just a little bit brighter. Now, Pino's racism did not just spring out of nowhere. There is also his father, Sal, who does not make any real effort to call his son out on his nonsense. Sal, to his credit, takes enormous pride in feeding generations of Bed-Stuy residents with his food. He knows that he has no issues with the people that have been patronizing his pizzeria for the past 25 years. In a scene where Sal and Pino are discussing the latter's antipathy for working in Bed-Stuy instead of their home in Bensonhurst, Sal notes that their own neighborhood is already saturated with pizza shops, hence why Sal's business has had a chance to thrive elsewhere. One notable scene in the film features Mookie's friend Buggin' Out, played by Giancarlo Esposito, a wild-eyed young man powered by righteous indignation, getting into an argument with Sal. As Buggin' Out sits down to eat his slice of pizza, he immediately notices Sal's wall of fame, which features famous Italian and Italian-American figures only, such as Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Liza Minnelli, and Frank Sinatra. Buggenau asks Sal why there aren't any black folks on his wall, to which Sal replies that it's for Italians only. Buggenau replies that because Sal's pizzeria is located in a black neighborhood, with black customers being his primary clientele, that they ought to have some say about his wall. When Sal responds by threatening to knock Buggenau upside his head with a baseball bat, Mookie intervenes and takes his friend outside. While I do understand Buggin' Out's perspective, in this case, Sal's feelings are legitimate. Given that it is not only his business, along with the fact that he chose to establish his business in a location where pizzerias are not as ubiquitous, there is a certain level of novelty that his Italian-American enclave provides to the bed community. Black and brown residents come in and enjoy his food, and Sal gets to display a piece of his own culture. It's a win-win. Although there is also some validity to Buggin' Out's points regarding the lack of black representation on Sal's wall of fame considering the customers that buy his food, and on a broader scale, there is something to be said about the fact that Sal's Pizzeria and the Korean Corner Store located across the street are the two prominent businesses and food sources that we see in the black neighborhood that the film takes place in. 
Buggin' Out would likely have some words about the lack of black businesses on the block. Focusing on Buggin' Out for a bit, he's also another interesting character. Throughout the film, he embarks on a one-man crusade to encourage the rest of the neighborhood to boycott Sal's Pizzeria. He also gets into a brief verbal altercation with a white Larry Bird jersey-wearing yuppie, played by John Savage, who accidentally bumps into Buggin' Out and scuffs his fresh white sneakers. Buggin' Out calls out the yuppie and his friends even step in to instigate the situation. He accosts the yuppie, railing against the man's very presence on what Buggin' Out claims is my block, my neighborhood, my side of the street pointedly bemoaning gentrification when the yuppie replies that he not only owns the brownstone he lives in, but that he was also born in Brooklyn, much to the annoyance of Buggin' Out and his peers. Now, it is clear that Buggin' Out is conscious of racial and social inequities that are reflected in his own community, and he genuinely wants to affect change and make some sort of positive difference in his neighborhood. However, there is a sense of futility in his earnestness. In a 2023 interview with GQ, Giancarlo Esposito explains this point, stating that as much as Buggin' Out wants to be a revolutionary, quote, he had no tools. He didn't have the education to carry things out the right way. So in his little way, he wanted to create some kind of change. So I had this idea that he was a loose cannon because he didn't have the poise or the charisma or the expertise to really think it all the way through. End quote. When he criticizes Sal for not having black folks on his wall of fame, Buggin' Out yearns for representation of his people in his community, but again, he lacks a constructive path to address his grievances and is considered by some of the other characters as a mere rabble-rouser. He certainly got a reason to bug out, but what can he really do? The same could arguably be said about Radio Rahim, played by Bill Nunn. Seen throughout the film blasting Public Enemy's anthem, Fight the Power, Radio Rahim is in a way the beating heart of the neighborhood, clad in a bedside t-shirt and adorned with two giant golden rings that read, Love and Hate which was inspired by Robert Mitchum's evil preacher role in the 1955 classic, The Night of the Hunter. Whenever Rahim steps through the scene, the other neighborhood kids give him a wide berth. Just one stern glance from Rahim is all it takes for others to silently make way for him as he marches to the sounds of P.E. There are similarities between Rahim and his friend Buggin' Out in that Rahim is also fully aware of injustice, but he does not have the means to affect true change in his neighborhood. He and Buggin' Out later team up to confront Sal near the end of the film, who is the powers that be in their eyes. If Rahim had the resources and the direction to truly fight the powers that be, inequality, injustice, he would be a true force of nature. He wouldn't need a souped-up boombox to let his voice truly be heard. The story Rahim tells Mookie of his love and hate rings, with love on the ropes and with all seeming lost, only for love to mount a comeback and KO hate and win, we want that for Rahim. We want him and Buggin' Out to knock down injustice and triumph. But sadly, as we will later find out in the film's climax, hate can be too stubborn to stay down on the mat.
As the film floats between the different characters in the neighborhood, there is a subtle through-line of what I consider an empathy deficit, which is informed implicitly or explicitly by the prejudice that is baked into American culture. For example, there is a moment when we see a couple of cops drive by a group of three older black gentlemen, played by Robin Harris, Paul Benjamin, and Frankie Faison. The cops mutter to themselves, what a waste, as they drive by the men, when Faison's character, Coconut Sid, utters, what a waste, at the cops. The police are considered by the trio, and by the neighborhood at large, as an occupying force. They are not patrolling bedside to protect and serve the residents. Conversely, the cops view the three black men and the rest of the neighborhood as unworthy of their respect, just bodies to stomp underneath their boot heels. We also see a decided lack of empathy through how others viewed the mayor, who is the elderly neighborhood drunk who stumbles around in a dirty, cheap-looking suit and hat, occasionally quenching his thirst with a beer in his hand. There are a few instances in the film where the mayor receives the ire of Mother Sister, played by Ruby D, who simply cannot abide the mere sights of the man who has the audacity to walk past her window. There's an exchange they have where the mayor tells Mother Sister that he loves everybody, even her, to which she retorts that the mayor should hold his tongue because he doesn't have that much love. He replies by saying, quote, One day, you're gonna be nice to me. We may both be dead and buried, but you're gonna be nice, at least civil. End quote. Even the camera angles of their first encounter in the film conveys how they see each other, with the mayor filmed at a high angle and mother sister shot at a low angle. In her eyes, he is just a lowly drunk, while he views her with respect. Another scene involving the mayor finds him being disrespected by one of the neighborhood teenagers who is accompanied by his friends. Ahmad, played by Steve White, disparages the mayor by calling him a bum, to which the mayor attempts to defend himself by revealing his own vulnerability, alluding to his own past hardships where he had five hungry children and a woman, presumably his wife, whom he couldn't look in the eye. Ahmad dismissively rebuffs his story, his words dripping with venomous judgment by telling the mayor that he doesn't want to know or care about his pain and that he will never be respected by Ahmad or anyone else. Unfortunately, there aren't too many people in the film who empathize with or regard the mayor with real dignity. Through the character of Mookie, we see an empathy deficit demonstrated by the demands of capitalism, specifically through his number one preoccupation with getting paid. Our first introduction to Mookie finds him in his bedroom, counting his latest earnings. His sister Jade, played by Lee's sister, Joa Lee, is concerned about Mookie's lax attitude towards his job and reminds him to take care of his responsibilities, that of his toddler son and girlfriend Tina, played by Rosie Perez. Mookie does not seem too concerned about what's on his plate, even half-heartedly reassuring Tina over the phone that he'll come over and see their son. It takes his girlfriend to order a pizza from Sal's for him to even show up at her apartment. Empathy is also fresh out of stock in one of the film's most memorable sequences where five of the characters, Mookie, Pino, a Puerto Rican man, 
a cop, and the Korean store owner lob racist epithets directly at the camera, giving the hateful smoke to blacks, Italians, Asians, Latinos, and Jews in equal measure. Mr. Senor Love Daddy tells them to cool that shit out. Here, the racial tension is laid bare, a sort of sad release valve for these characters and ostensibly the neighborhood, until the film's climax, which we will finally explore now. The events of Do the Right Thing come to a head where Sal and Sons are closing up shop at the end of the day. Mookie's about to go home when the neighborhood teenagers crowd at the door craving some pizza. Sal decides to let the kids in for one last serving of the day when soon afterwards Radio Rahim and Buggin' Out arrive with Fight the Power booming at full volume. This is Rahim's second encounter with Sal in the film. Sal yells at Rahim to turn his boombox off before losing his temper, dropping some end bombs at Rahim, and proceeding to destroy his radio with a baseball bat. Rahim retaliates by attacking Sal, pinning him to the ground before the cops arrive and putting the young man in a chokehold, lifting him off the ground, his sneakers twitching inches off the ground before his body goes limp. When the cops drop Rahim's body on the ground, we see a shot of his love ring in the foreground. Hate wins this round. The cops then take Rahim's body away, arrest Buggin' Out, and drive away while the residents look on in stunned silence. While Sal, Pino, and Vito stand alone, looking at the crowd of people gathered in front of their pizzeria, the residents say the names of real-life black individuals who were killed by racial violence and or police brutality before the release of the film, Michael Stewart and Eleanor Bumpers. 35 years after the release of this film, you could take this exact same scene and add too many more names. Eric Gardner, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. Too many names. Nearly four decades after Do the Right Thing was released. What has changed? What has changed? With tensions rising, Mookie takes a trash can and throws it through the pizzeria window while shouting hate. A riot ensues, with the residents flooding the pizza shop and destroying the business from within, quickly setting fire to Sal's pizzeria. Chants of Howard Beach are also uttered by the crowd as the building burns to the ground. Some of the residents are quick to turn their attention to the Korean store across the street, to which the owner, Sonny, played by Steve Park, fends off the onlookers, shouting that he's not white, but black, and that he and the rest of the black residents are the same. They leave him and his family and business alone, more bemused by the man's reaction to the ensuing chaos. While the pizzeria burns down, more cops and the fire department rush in and turn their hoses onto the residents. Meanwhile, another character, Smiley, played by Roger Guinevere Smith, enters the burning building and places a photo of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King on Sal's wall of fame. Finally, some brothers on the wall. 
After the release of Do the Right Thing, Spike Lee made notes of reactions among some white audiences and critics who voiced more concern over the destruction of property than the outright murder of a young black man, a human being. Lee elaborates further on the commentary track of the film, stating that only white viewers asked the question if Mookie did the right thing by throwing the trash can through the window, while black audiences do not ask that same question at all. Here's another question. What is the right thing to do when a human being is unjustly killed right before your very eyes and you're powerless to stop it? The film ends with two conflicting quotes by Martin Luther King and Malcolm X on nonviolence versus violence. Both quotes ask us, what is the right thing? MLK's full statement reads, quote, Violence as a way of achieving racial justice is both impractical and immoral. It is impractical because it is a descending spiral, ending in destruction for all. The old law of an eye for an eye leaves everybody blind. It is immoral because it seeks to humiliate the opponent rather than win his understanding. It seeks to annihilate rather than to convert. Violence is immoral because it thrives on hatred rather than love. It destroys community and makes brotherhood impossible. It leaves society in monologue rather than dialogue. Violence ends by defeating itself. It creates bitterness in the survivors and brutality in the destroyers. End quote. Malcolm X's statement offers a counterpoint, stating, quote, I think there are plenty of good people in America. But there are also plenty of bad people in America, and the bad ones are the ones who seem to have all the power and be in these positions to block things that you and I need. Because this is the situation, you and I have to preserve the right to do what is necessary to bring an end to that situation. And it doesn't mean that I advocate violence. But at the same time, I am not against using violence in self-defense. I don't even call it violence when it's self-defense. I call it intelligence, end quote. The inclusion of these two contrasting statements from both King and X is not meant to both sides the events of the film's climax or the events beforehand. Rather, we are left to decide for ourselves and draw our own conclusions. The power and potency of Do the Right Thing is that it offers us no easy answers whatsoever. The enduring impact of Spike Lee's third feature film has been felt in the years since the film's release. It was nominated for two Academy Awards, one for Best Original Screenplay for Lee and one for Best Supporting Actor for Danny Aiello. Ten years after Do the Right Thing made its debut, it was added to the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress in 1999. In 2015, the one-block section of Stuyvesant Avenue, where the film was shot, was renamed Do the Right Thing Way, honoring the film's legacy and cultural impact. Do the Right Thing is a classic film. Its artistry and nuanced exploration of racism and prejudice respects the intelligence of the viewer, refusing to offer simple solutions or patronizing feel-good messaging or overbearing moralizing. It is still a timely film today, perhaps even more so than its release in 1989.
And so that concludes this week's episode of Do The Film Thing. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this show, please tune in next Sunday for episode five of season one. In the meantime, you can also follow Do The Film Thing on various podcasting platforms such as Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and iHeartRadio. You can also follow Do The Film Thing on social media via Instagram at Do The Film Thing. Once again, my name is Victor Omoyo, and remember to do the film thing always. Always.